All right, Andrew, I have two questions for you. One, what was your favorite talk show in the 90s? And two, would you have brought on your boyfriend or your mother to go on Sally Jesse Raphael? Part one, my favorite talk show was Ricky Lake because she was young and cool and you go Ricky, go Ricky, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But part two, definitely my mom. And we would have had some like... Stop dressing like me. Yeah, right. (laughs) I I told my mom how to dress. Are you trying to say that I look like a hooker? Yeah! If my daughter dressed like this, I would be very happy. My favorite talk show, since you didn't ask, was RuPaul's talk show. Like, Ru had a talk show for a year in 1997, and it was so good. It's the RuPaul Show with the queen of all media, RuPaul. So I loved Ricky, you loved Ru, and then everyone loved Rosie. I'm nervous. You're nervous? I'm nervous. Don't be nervous! You're my Tommy! So today on People in the 90s, we have Rosie O'Donnell on the show, if you can believe it. And we're going to talk to Rosie about talk shows in the 90s. We're going to talk about her life in the 90s. And needless to say, the woman has a whole lot to talk about. I wanted to have a show that you could watch with your nana after school like I did. And that's what I made. So this week, we're going back to November 4th, 1996. Rosie was on the cover and number one at the box office was Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. My heart loved till now. Claire Danes and Leo. I mean, how amazing. For I never saw true beauty till this night. And the Macarena was number one. Hey, Macarena. Okay. <laughs> anyway, I'm Jason Sheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jason. You always say that. <laughs> it makes me laugh when you do that. Me too. I make myself laugh. Isn't that what I'm here to do? Entertain myself? I guess so. Sure. Okay. I'm just like, I don't know, a talk show host from the 90s. <laughs> I mean, right? So it's been 25 years since Rosie O'Donnell's show premiered on TV. And by the way, she used what was Phil Donahue's set, which is just incredible. But let's just talk for a second about life, as I call it, BR and AR, like before Roe and after Roe. I love that you call her Roe, by the way. I, I'm, well, I'm convinced. I'm just convinced I can now call her Roe right? But like, before we get to her, I have to ask you, like, let's talk about what talk shows did for us. And that means Jason and Andrea for a second. I just want to hear about like your memories of like just talk shows in general, because I vividly remember the first time I saw a real life gay person on TV, like a real gay men who were a couple. It was on Donahue and he had these bodybuilders named Bob and Rod Jackson Paris on. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Slow down and go back. Their names were what and who? (laughs) Bob and Rod Jackson Paris. I thought you said Bob and Rod Paris Jackson. And I was like, my pop culture brain just exploded. I don't know what you're saying. Oh my God. It just like completely collided. Yes. Bob and Rod Jackson Paris. And they were these bodybuilders and they were beautiful. And they were on Donahue because they legally changed their names to be hyphenated. But the point is like, it was there on Donahue in a very like respectful and not sensationalized way. And it was a real paradigm shift in my mind that like, you know, two men could like, you know, be together. You fall in love. And uh, when Rod Rod and I met, we found a spiritual bond between each other. And you develop this relationship and this... uh, And that's what talk shows did for me in a really awesome way. Okay, tell me yours. (laughs) Well, how the hell am I going to compete with Bob and Rod, Jackson Paris, hyphenate? (laughs) And honestly, I rarely saw myself up on the screen because what I thought was so fun about talk shows was that they often went to the counterculture to have Mm. these outrageous moments. And while they were using a lot of these people for content, 
you know, like you were just saying, like these guys, you know, are entertainment to people. They're not used to seeing this. Mm. I found it really inspiring, too, because I had no idea that people lived lives like they did Mm. on these shows. And I'm my favorite were anytime Donahue had the club kids on. That was pretty epic. 4 a.m. Do you know where your kids are? Well, they could be right here at the limelight. One of New York's premier night spots. They're called club kids. And they party all night and sleep all day. And they would try to explain their lifestyle to him. And again, it never felt like he was just trying to exploit them. But it was also, they were totally shameless. Like, this is who I am. Mr. Donahue, if I can say something. I I do the door of of the the limelight, okay? And I think that it's very important. If you have nothing but this in the clubs, it gets very dull. You need a mixture of everything. You need old, young. You need drag queens. You need straight people. You need gay. You need need a little bit of everything in order to make the club work. If it's just, I would... And I'm like, oh my God, this is the coolest thing I've ever seen. And one day... I'm going to move to New York City. I'm going to wear platform shoes that are like seven encyclopedias stacked high. And I'm going to dance on tables at Limelight. I love that you used encyclopedias as like a measurement. But like to the daytime TV landscape in like May of 1996, right? Before Rosie, it was like soaps, OJ, Jerry Springer. Yeah. Like Oprah, Lisa Gibbons and Lisa Gibbons, Ricky, more OJ. Remember, there's like also a Jerry Springer. I think you could get like VHS tapes, like too hot for TV. Oh my God. But the stuff he couldn't air, like he that would that became a new revenue stream. Can I just read you some of the titles of Jerry Springer shows? I've been waiting. Okay. Um, first I just have to start with um Gaze of Our Lives. Stop it. Stop it. Uh, that was Jerry Springer. Uh-huh. Am I the dad? Question mark. DNA results, exclam. I hate my daughter, exclamation mark. <laughs> Cut right to the chase. Dad to three at 19, but are they mine? These are like lifetime movie pitches. <laughs> I got your sister pregnant, exclamation mark. Two timing X, dot, dot, dot. You're the dad. It was so sleazy. It was so sleazy. And then like, I, I just have a few more. And, and Chris, we can cut some of this out. Please don't. Um, <laughs> I want my lover to have an affair. Exclamation point. <laughs> exclamation mark. Oh, this is like crazy. Lesbian threesomes with mom. Wow. Beautiful but boring in bed. Hmm. I'm taking your man. I really want to watch Beautiful but Boring in Bed. That's kind of awesome. And just going to end with these two because it really speaks to like who I was at the time. One show was named Hillbillies and Hurricanes. And the other was Love dot 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 Hillbilly Style. I would like to watch that. Um, (laughs) Wow. So daytime TV really changed when Rosie O'Donnell decided to have a talk show, right? And the story goes, she was filming the movie Harriet the Spy. And she had this new baby, Parker, whom she adopted. So she was wondering, like, what job could she have where she could spend time with her kid, right? And so she decided to start a talk show, and really, everything changed. And so, like, Andrea, six months after the premiere of her talk show, she was on our cover, where we uncomfortably stacked up her net worth to Oprah's. But I guess magazines just did that back then. But the fact is, TV changed because Rosie was like, I ain't doing trash. Mm-hmm. I ain't doing Jerry Springer. I ain't doing conflict. I want happy. I want joy. I want koosh balls. I want Tom Cruise. Yeah, it was interestingly, it sounds weird to say this, but it was revolutionary for her to just be pleasant and nice and give, you know, celebrities a safe space to just be adorable and not to ask mm. them invasive questions or gotcha moments. And yes, of course, she launched Koosh Balls into the audience. And um, that was why she was branded the Queen of Nice, which she has said a few times she knew was going to bite her in the ass because that's a tough title to take on. But that's who she was to all of us. She was 
you know, likable, affable, relatable, all the ables. We all just like wanted to hang out with Ro, as you call her. By the way, sidebar, what is or was a koosh ball? Oh, I forgot that you're from Arkansas and thought that Snapple was a made up drink <laughs> they only had in TV. I was actually in college in New York at Parsons when the show premiered. And so I actually did watch it. But I, I don't think I've ever held a koosh ball. Have you? What is a koosh ball? Oh, I had several. I had giant koosh. I had mini koosh. It's such a strange word. And it sounds vaguely sexual. Yeah, they were like these stretchy, rubbery, like strings. And it was all like fringe. So you, it was a ball and it was like, whew, everybody loved a koosh ball. But what was it for? For fun, Jason. It was for fun. <laughs> okay. I don't know, but I loved it. There's no need to raise your voice. <laughs> I mean, like according to Wikipedia, there are 50 koosh related products, including key rings and baseball sets and yo-yos. Yes. And here you're actually bringing up a very important point. Go ahead. Rosie was, you know, we say this about a lot of different celebrities of the time, but like she really was an influencer in the truest sense, because if Rosie liked something, talked about something, showed something on the show, the sales were insane. It was like there was the Oprah effect, but there was really the Rosie effect. So whether it was koosh balls hmm. or um, Krispy Kreme donuts, it was like if Rosie likes it, we trust her because she's our friend. You know, she loves Tommy Cruz. She loves Barbara Streisand. She's just... I love that you said Tommy. Well, that's what she called him, right? Tommy. Cutie patootie. She represented the people. Oprah was like very highbrow. And here you had just one of us. What was the Muppet character that she really put on the map? Tickle Me Elmo. Oh, the Muppet character. Sesame Street. Are those not Muppets? No, they're not the same. Is that a different universe? It is. But you know, like distant cousins. Okay, anyway... Christmas 1996, the Tickle Me Elmo craze was because Rosie featured it on her show. Yeah. And everybody wanted one. But her thing was that these brands, if she plugged to their products, they had to make donations to groups in need. So she was like, I will show this, but you have to do this. So she sent like Tickle Me Elmos to like hundreds and hundreds of kids who needed them. So she was all about charity and giving away. Hmm. And that's sort of a thing now that you're like forced to do if you're a celebrity Otherwise, everyone thinks you're a monster who just hoards money. Oh, well, yeah. It's like that she was able to work with advertisers, leverage her power for good, right? And I think that's where this label, which was actually a Newsweek cover, The Queen of Nice, came from. And it, in many ways, it could have possibly, you know, just put a big target on her back, right? It's like, you know, you call someone The Queen of Nice, it's just a setup and it's a exhausting trope that we do in American pop culture over and over and over again, where we build someone up. And then just wait for the inevitable downfall. And look, and we just, you know, have to say it like, you know, Ellen DeGeneres was not our first queen of nice, right? Right. Who then, it turns out, people aren't perfect. It's shocking. <laughs> shocking. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to talk to her. She did so much. Stand-up comedian, actress, talk show host, Broadway performer, all in the 90s. So we have a lot to talk to her about. Movies. Before we get into our interview with Ro, we're calling her Ro. I know you call her Ro. I think you're allowed. You're allowed. You're allowed. Okay. Okay. I think we should give our listeners a little bit of a warning that I don't know if you guys know, Rosie O'Donnell's pretty rich and she has an amazing <laughs> house apparently in Los Angeles where she was um, speaking to us from. And she was outside on what I imagine was her veranda terrace estate and it had a lot of wind because when you have a lot of land, apparently you have a lot of wind. 
you know, the issue we're talking about was our who earns what cover. So and in 1996, <laughs> she was earning a reported $8 million a year. Yeah. I just like in our best, like Al Roker, we just want to let you guys know there's a wind advisory today <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> Rosie, I mean, I've dreamed of for like 30 years of referring to you as Ro, because like as a little closeted gay boy in Arkansas, I was like, I think she'd like me, you know? Yes, I would. <laughs> well, I think I speak for a lot of people who like identify in any way as other. But we know like we know you as a mom, an actor, a crafter and a TikToker, because that's your Twitter bio. Right. And we know you from amazing movies and TV and your groundbreaking Emmy winning talk show, which premiered 25 years ago this month. Because we know that like among the many things you accomplished, you created a template for talk shows that we see every day today, like Ellen, Andy Cohen. But let's start with what was your life like the week of November 4th, 1996, because you were on the cover of People magazine? Yeah, I remember it was strange because they said, you know, Rosie O'Donnell, the queen of nice. And I remember holding it up and saying, you know, next year it's going to be the queen of fried rice. It's going to be the queen of lice. Like. I made a joke on TV about how this was going to come and be a pain in my butt. But I know you're on the cover of People in 1996. It was a who earns what. Oh, I didn't know that. Because we were talking about how major you were. And it's a little, in all due respect to us, tacky. But this was about five months after your talk show had premiered. I thought you were talking about the queen of nice like that. But the people ones were... uh... They were plentiful at the time. and <laughs> They were plentiful. I mean, while we would love to take credit for having given you the Queen of Nice title, that was actually Newsweek magazine. I do remember that, but they were always around. There were always People magazine. You know, it was a staple growing up. The neighbors got it. Mm-hmm. They got that in TV Guide, which I thought that was the height of success. If you could get a subscription to People and TV Guide, you know. But I do remember that time in my life. They gave me a lot of money and um, it's been money that has sustained me for 25 years and my five children. And and that's what happened to me. They came and told me in year four, when I was only scheduled to do five, you know, that, that you had, I had X amount of money in the bank. And I said, then I'm done working. And everyone was like, well, well, you can make X amount of millions more. I said, if you have X amount of millions and you think you need X amount of millions more, you've lost the whole meaning of life. So before the talk show, you got your start in stand-up. Yes. Um, We were wondering, what was your life like as a female stand-up comedian in the 90s? You were hosting Stand-Up Spotlight on VH1, which Jason and I have been binge-watching clips of that all day and laughing and sending them back and forth to each other. I mean, there, there was this bit where you were talking about Tina Turner, how her voice changed when she came back with Private Dancer. When Tina became re-famous with her Private Dancer album. She started speaking with a foreign accent for no apparent reason. <laughs> all right, she's an American citizen. She's from Tennessee. She gets her Grammy Award. All of a sudden, she's from the British West Indies. <laughs> really, she's at the award ceremony going, I love to thank everyone for making my album Private Dancer. That's a success <laughs> Thank you for coming, for voting for me, for standing. Good night. And then she and her hair leave the stage. And it was like... She started speaking in a different dialect. Right, for no apparent reason. Hello, I'm Tina Turner. Yes. Find gold in your web. I love her, though. She became Eartha Kitt or something. Totally. Yeah, you know, doing stand-up back then, there were so few female comics, but there was work every week. But of course, they couldn't do it without announcing, it's female comedy night, like, you know. 
Estrogen night. It's estrogen. We have a lot of women. Oh, my God. And, you know, sometimes the club owner would pick you up at the airport and go, you know, you're like the third female comic we've had. And if you're not funny, we're not hiring anymore. Like, oh, great. Just my entire gender's employment. Thank you. No pressure on me. But it was a tough time when I think back on it now. Although then I was very focused and very driven and I knew exactly where I wanted to go and what I wanted to do. So there was no stopping me. But when I now, as a mom, look back, I think, wow, she was given a lot of free reign, that kid, you know. I was also quite impressed by your hair. Oh, so big, wasn't it? It was spectacular. We actually, we were talking about your fashion. It was really chic. There was like kind of a brooch. It was almost like has like a tie here. And it's like a great suit. It was like super, super cool. You looked cool. It was always the hardest part for me whenever I would, when I was on star search and I, uh, I wore all the esprit clothes, but then I didn't have enough money. I kept winning, but you didn't get your paycheck. When you look back on your career and all the things that you've done and, and people you've met and situations, it's kind of hard to believe, even though it's your own. So Rosie, the actor, you had a brief sitcom start with this show in 1992 called Stand By Your Man yes. with Melissa Gilbert. It was right. billed as Fox's next Married with Children. Actually, our review of it was your first time you were mentioned in People Magazine. What what did you learn from that foray into scripted TV sitcoms? Well, it was supposed to be me and Fran Drescher. Oh. And they said that we were too similar to be sisters. I'm like, hello? What are you talking about? You know? But so then it became, um, for a while, Christine Ebersole was was up for doing that. And then they ended up with Melissa Gilbert. Because when you think of comedy... You think a little house of the <laughs> But um, she was lovely. We got along great. It just wasn't a very well-written show. You know, it was a, started out on CBS, ended up on Fox. And I was oh. so happy it got canceled because I got to do League of Their Own. Well, thank you for the segue. So we've gone from stand-up to TV. Now we're at movies. So you had League of Their Own, Sleepless in Seattle, which I just rewatched the other day. Beautiful Girls, which Jason and I uh, both are weirdly obsessed with. I could recite your monologue in the convenience store back to you. It's one of the best ever. Flintstones. So what was it like to have that streak of amazing movies? I also have to add another stakeout, which I, I thought was so, so awesome. I, I know you don't like Exit to Eden. I know that was like not, but like you, you had- I, We like it. Listen, it was Gary Marshall. You can't complain. Right. He had a beautiful set. He ran it like a family. And you know, you make a movie, you don't know if it's going to be a hit or crap. You know, and that one, I was like, what do we do? And I had a brand new puppy and Gary said, bring the puppy to the press thing. Bring the puppy. And I I did. And so I was sort of talking about my puppy instead of the movie. But I, I have been so fortunate. It is beyond my wildest dreams that I could have gotten to do that. You know, so I've had sort of a varied career, but to have that many films in a row and, you know, somebody was reading a list of my IMDb and I was like, wow, that's a lot of work. It is. It really is. And uh, I was in the number one movie three summers in a row. And that was pretty intense. And then started my talk show. Which one do you rewatch or would you love to rewatch? Well, I stop on League of Their Own whenever it's on. We all look so young. And my son only saw it recently and he's 20 now. And what do you say? He said to me, Mom, I saw this movie over at Joey's. It was like you were a teenager and you were playing baseball and you were talking like Stallone. 
It's a great review. <laughs> Surprised you haven't seen it till you're 21. I love you said talking like Stallone. I mean, that's actually a quite like that's a nuanced criticism there, right? Yeah. And I was, hey, mate, come over here, mate. How you doing? You know, like Fonzie. Yeah. Yeah. How long you been working on that, Doris? Yeah. Took me about a year. Not counting them two months I was in the hospital. Bat hit me right in the head. Bam. Really? But Penny was great and she knew how to use that as the pepper and not as the meat, you know, as a as a spice and beautifully handed me a career in the movies by letting me do that film and giving me so much extra time to ad lib. You know, I really do miss her. That was such a tragedy that we lost her. Mm. You also got to work with Nora Ephron. I mean, you really two of the great female directors of our time. Yes. What did you learn from her? Everything about how to order in a restaurant. When you get dessert, get a bunch and a lot of forks. And she was a wonderful woman in my life. She got me an apartment in her building, the Apthorpe, where I lived there when Parker was just newborn. The most New York testament of friendship. She helped me get an apartment. Yes. Which was hard to do. You know, that's the place where everybody was getting paid under the table, some money, you know. So she said to me, can you get four thousand dollars? I'm like, yes. She said today. I said, yes. She said, I got you an apartment. I love it. And she had to give an envelope to the woman with the long black hair. And, you know, Cindy still lives there. Cindy Lauper still lives in that apartment. Oh, God. What a I mean, that's there's a movie or a sitcom in that right there. Like who always in that apartment? Yes. Okay, of course, you met Madonna on A League of Their Own. And I love that recent pic on Instagram where you all were celebrating Madonna's daughter's Mercy's birthday. And look, we all love y'all's friendship. Uh, you've been asked every question about it. Just, I can't responsibly leave this interview without a Madonna question. So what is a favorite song of hers? Like, what do you still listen to? What are you loving? You know, uh, I love that song that never really was a big hit. Pink Elephants and Lemonade. Oh my God, totally. That was Dear Jesse, I think, from the Like a Prayer album. I love that song. I love her voice on that song. But, you know, that was, I remember being a VJ in like 1986 and and Sandra Bernhardt was friends with Madonna at that time. And I remembered I had to do little news segments and little two minute segments in between, you know, and I'd say, can you imagine being friends with Madonna? How are you friends with Madonna? How could someone become friends with Madonna? And then cut to many years later, you know, I'm cast as her best friend in this movie and her film had just come out. And so, you know, I saw someone who's mother was named after her on the tombstone. Hmm. Like I never had met another person whose mother had died who was my age, you know, when they were little. And we formed like a sisterly bond from that moment on. And and that's what she feels like family and her kids, you know, too. And and I just love her. I think she's pretty amazing. I loved that Instagram picture. I will tell you that. Do you know what I was listening to earlier in my car driving down Santa Monica Boulevard? Your Christmas song was Cher. Which oh, was like, that a good one? It's, I have to say, that's kind of a bop. I mean, I really, like, seriously, like, if it wasn't even Christmas music, like, I mean, I was kind of bobbing my head to it. It's a really cute song. Yeah, I love those Christmas records. Those Christmas records are for the diehard fans. Every time November starts, people are like, I'm putting on your CDs. I, I didn't know you recorded a song with Cher. I was like, I missed that one. It's like, it's a good song. So funny. So now we're on Broadway. It's unbelievable. Like you said, your own IMDb is like a dream. And you're in Greece as Rizzo. And Megan Mullally is your understudy, which I love. Yes. Would you do Broadway again? Did you just love that? Yeah, I was supposed to before the pandemic. I was supposed to do Funny Girl with Adina Menzel. And I would play the mom. 
and then the pandemic happened and it got pushed and then Adina has another project that she's attached to. So I don't know where it's the status is right now. So I was so thrilled and and then so disappointed when it got rescheduled, reshuffled. So we'll see what happens. Who knows? There's always a chance, but I, it's my first love and it's to me where show business is most like the dream of show business. Mm. I think when I was young, I had images of show business like Barbara Streisand and Liza and Mm. Bette would hang out on Fridays. Right, right. And, you know, in a way in my life, it has turned out to be that, but it doesn't feel like that. Like some of my best friends are like Fran Drescher is like a sister to me, you know, and Cindy Lauper and Madonna and, you know, people that I've, fallen in love with and worked with Kristen Chenoweth and they become family. Well, something that I, in reading about you that I, that I didn't know, I didn't know that you had filled in a lot for Kathy Lee on Regis and Kathy Lee. Yeah. And that you had even bandied about the idea of like taking that chair. Did you, would you really have wanted that chair? Yes. She would often at a time of her contract being up, say she wasn't coming back. Yes. She faked us out a lot. So one of those times I had a baby, I had Parker, it was 25 years ago and she was saying she wanted to leave. So I called my agent and said, could you get me that job? Cause I could be home and he could be with his cousins and it wouldn't be mm-hmm. a hassle for me. And, um, they said that she then decided not because of me, she just decided to stay. And the people who were talking about it said, why don't you do your own? And I was like, okay. And I would do Mike Douglas and Merv Griffin. So that's the prototype. And that's nobody gets hurt. No celebrity gets hurt on the show. Right. Everybody's having a good time. There's no gotcha. It's all good. Why was that so important to you to give celebrities like it was counter programming to what was going on at the time. People were drawn to kind of trash TV. It mattered to me that kids were coming home and watching the crap that they were like Geraldo with the, you know, people getting in fistfights. And I wanted to have a show that you could watch with your Nana after school like I did. And that's what I made. There are so many moments. I was going back and watching some episodes and plus the ones that are just seared into my brain. Right. Like, you know, whether it's you and Madonna doing yoga, the Barbara Streisand episode. Out there, dreams still come true. Please welcome. I knew I would do this. Barbara Streisand. The Barbara Streisand episode. I have to tell you uh, a little self-indulgently that, in many ways, to me, it feels like my mom walking oh, through the curtain so because I have to say that you were a don't constant. Make, you're going to make me. Cry I'm sorry. I, you know, I don't want to do anything that would upset you no. in any way, but. <laughs> source of light in an orphan dark childhood and you inspired me and gave me the courage to dream of a life better than the one I knew and I am profoundly grateful to you in so many ways. But I was listening to you on Judy Gold's podcast talking about the mammograms. Yeah. And so some of this stuff that you did really is so commonplace today on daytime TV. And I would love to know what, what moments are you proud of when you look back and like, I did that. I'm so proud of myself. Well, a lot of that stuff, a lot of the mammogram stuff, a lot of people, you know, would come up to me and say, thank you. I caught it because you you had that, you know, and my mother died of it. And it was something that always scared me. I was afraid mm-hmm. I, I was afraid until I got the bracket test. You know, I thought I was going to be positive, but I was negative. And uh, so getting my mammogram every year was kind of terrifying for me. And I wanted to make sure that women knew this was their best shot at at sta- at saving themselves. And. So those, you know, months that we did all of October with mammogram songs, you know, 
forget your troubles, just get your boob squeezed. Mm-hmm. Well, those are my favorites, you know, and uh, people say to me, how could you be friends with Tommy with Scientology? You know, we don't we don't have that kind of relationship. You know, it's not like we have each other's cell phone and we text. You know, he sends me flowers every year for 25 years on my birthday. No way. Every single year and something for Christmas. Okay, so to be clear, he's he's still a cutie patootie, to be clear. Yes, he's a lovely, lovely man. And I do I wish that he would get out of that thing? Yes. Leah Remini, I think, has done so much for so many by being brave and vocal and HBO doing the documentaries that they did. There's it's no longer a time where you can say I didn't know. Hmm. At at the beginning, were you pulling were you calling in favors to, to friends to get them on the show or was it an easy booking? I know that you asked Warner Brothers to help you out with George Clooney on episode one. Right. But with the beginning, were you calling in favors with your buddies? Yes, definitely. You know, I mean, everyone I would I would ask everyone. And then, you know, it, it took off so quickly that we didn't have trouble after like the first week and like kind of exploded in a way that was really life altering. Was there a guest or a moment that you look back and you actually wish you could do differently? Sometimes I think the Tom Selleck one, you know, I feel bad in in ways that people still tie him to me, although he's no longer associated with the NRA is what I've been told. But I think that the reason that people are so extreme against the NRA is because the NRA has such a militant strength, especially a power in Washington, to to veto or to stronghold any sensible gun law. I'm not a spokesman for the NRA. I was a member when I was a kid. I learned firearm safety. And from what I see in the last three months, they don't do a lot of the stuff that that you assume they do. Well, they're against the registering of guns. We have to register cars. Why shouldn't we register guns so that when a crime is committed, we can trace who has owned it? You know, I I understand how you feel. You know, um, gun culture and the way people are thinking about guns in our society has changed also since he was a little kid growing up the way he did. And, you know, it, it the thing was, it was a safe show and he knew the first act was going to be the movie and the second after the commercial was going to be the NRA. But I don't think he expected it to get volatile or for me to actually have a strong opinion. You know, it would be so different now. Yeah, it totally that would. conversation. And Did you think the the surprise you know, by by the media, you know, by by fans, by, by you know, the ether of you suddenly having a hardcore opinion. Do you think that was surprising to people because you'd become a character, right? Like, like, you know, this like happy go lucky, you know, rosy, rosy character. Do you think that had something to do with it? You were the queen of nice. I think it's just the first time that I ever challenged a celebrity. Hmm. Every other one I was nice to, if they said, please, let's not talk about my divorce or my recent drug addiction, you know, drug rehab. I would do what they asked. I, I I was not a get your kind of interviewer. I had no desire to make anyone feel uncomfortable. Like Johnny Carson taught us, if there was egg on anyone's face, it's supposed to be the host, not the guest. So I think, you know, no one was expecting that I would challenge someone in the way that I did. I remember opening, I had a deal with for a multi couple of years at Caesars in the main room to go like twice a year. And so once I had the final contract of my Caesars Palace gig after my show had started. So I went to my Caesars Palace gig and I see people getting up and leaving because they are like little old ladies from Kansas who came in to see the girl from the TV show. And then I'm like, you know, let's talk about Woody Allen. That slimy bookworm piece of shit. Yeah. You know, and they're like, well, wait a minute. This is supposed to be my. So it was then that I realized there was a real delineation. You know, there was a line. Mm-hmm there that people couldn't cross or 
or mesh, you know, and I kind of stuck to it after that Tom Selleck one. Yes. Well, I think having the title, the queen of nice is like the best worst thing as a woman in the workplace, because then you're not allowed to have an opinion. Right. Well, and and the baked in misogyny of business in, in general, particularly in the 90s. Right. Yes, for sure. It was wild. It was like it was like being shot out of a cannon. And all of a sudden trying to get your bearings again or being in a tsunami and just trying to break the surface, you know, like everything started spinning like at once, you know, and there were a million offers and a million things to do and a million questions to answer. And then the money started coming. And, you know, I remember my wife, ex-wife Kelly, who my agent said, so how does it feel? Like, how does what feel? She's like, how does it feel to get that check today? And I'm like, what check today? She's like, you were sent a check. It was like for $25 million. And I said to my wife, Kel, did we get a check for $25 million? And she said, yeah, I gave it to the accountant guy. And I'm like, and it doesn't warrant a conversation. It doesn't, you know, like it, it just struck me as so odd that it became so typical that you could get something like that and not even know, like everything big, what could be topped everything, everything huge could be topped, you know, and it was jittery ground, jiggly ground for a while. You know, you couldn't really find your footing. Was this at the same time as when the paparazzi started invading your personal life, like on vacations, they would take pictures and kind of. Yeah, they would say like the first weekend or the first month of the show, I went down with some friends and, you know, everybody who was in my life and, and in my career life even knew I was gay. You know, I was always with my partner. I was never pretending. People thought, oh, you were pretending with Tom Cruise. Not really. Like I I want him to mow my lawn and get me lemonade. I never said I wanted to see him nasty, naked. Hmm. (laughs) He's very handsome. Right. I don't care who you are. That's a gorgeous man. Objectively. So it it was a strange thing to hurdle. When I took the job at, at Warner Brothers, I told them I was gay and I told them, you know, I want you to know before you spend all this money on me. And I don't want this to be ever a reason that you would let me go. So make sure we're all on the same page as we start here, you know, and that I felt was the most important thing that I did. Yeah. No one could ever make me feel threatened or like like they're going to share some secret or something blackmailable, you know. Well, in fact, you you said that you said, yeah, you said, I don't want someone to come to me in three months and go, oh, my God, the National Enquirer has this thing. I would love I mean, it, I, you've done so much for the LGBTQ community, for my community. I just interviewed Ricky Martin the other day, and he was talking about he wants to normalize families like his. And this is something that this is something that you did. What was that negotiation like, like for you? Like, how did you walk that line? Because in 1996 was a different time. Well, you know what? People magazine once had me on the cover that says the world's hardest working single mother. And I really wasn't a single mother. I was with Kelly. So it was like a lie, you know? So I felt like I don't even want this acknowledgement or whatever, because look good. I not only do I have help, I have a wife. Mm, That was in 2000. Yeah. Yeah. If you're going to raise all these children, my advice would be get a wife, you know, (laughs) because it's hard. It's hard on your own. And I wasn't the hardest working single woman in the country. But, you know, uh, I knew that I represented that. So that was kind of hard. That kind of felt weird. And sometimes my publicist, Lois Smith, who has since died, Um, You know, she I told her about Kelly when before the show started and and everyone, you know, in my life knew. And but she would constantly try to push Kelly out of the way, like going into an award show. She physically now she was Marilyn Monroe's publicist, so she has some clout. Right. (laughs) She would physically push 
Kelly to not be in the photos. Oh and, you know, she like, do you have to sit next to her? I'm like, yes, yeah, she's my wife. We have children, you know? Oh and, and we so, just, that was just somehow like we all made deals with ourselves back then. Right. Of course, like, and then, you know, Ellen was on your show and you joked, maybe I'm Lebanese. So you were winking at us. That was funny. I just thought this is going to ruin her career and ruin her life. And um, I think she was very brave to do what she did back then. And I think that I was kind of brave in my own way to stand next to her and say, oh, yeah, I think I'm a Lebanese, too. You know, I don't know how this leaked out either, because we were really trying to build this up slowly and, and reveal it in a way that would be, you know, I, I just change people's opinions, basically. Yeah. I, we do find out that the, ca- the character is Lebanese and uh, <laughs> Lebanese. yeah, yeah. And just out of the blue, she just... No, it's, there have been clues. I mean, oh, really? she's, you've seen her eating baba ganoush, if you've watched the show at all. <laughs> baba ganoush. And hummus. And, uh, and big, big fan of Casey Kasem and Kathy and Jimmy's. <laughs> yeah, and... Uh, hey, wait a minute. I'm a big fan of Casey Kasem. Listen. You go, girl. Maybe I'm Lebanese. You could be Lebanese. I could be Lebanese myself. I didn't know yeah. that. You know, sometimes... That's that's odd because I pick up sometimes that you might be Lebanese. Yeah. Yeah. I think by not making it an issue and acting, not acting, but being this is me, this is my life. There's no hide and there's no it's just it. But now you think that. But back then you didn't in the 90s. You didn't think that there was no one who was out. I get it, Rosie. Like we were hiding and changing um, pronouns was commonplace. Right. You know, now I think with all the they stuff like how hard it's going to be to do they people say. And I'm like, but I remember how easily I could just avoid pronouns when I spoke when I wasn't out, you know? Right. You know, and when they told me I was already on my show, it was already going well. Oh, there's a new show called Will and Grace where a gay guy is going to live with the yes. straight girl. I'm like, well, it's going to get canceled in a week. So get ready. And cut to you playing right. the mother of Jack's son. Exactly. I mean, has someone like, let's just ask, as someone said, Rosie, do you want to do your talk show again? Has anyone asked you that? There's a big void. Yes. They have. They have asked. They've asked. You know, I feel like for me, it was really of a time. The time to start a new show for TV now with the social delivery platforms that they have is not a 60 year old woman. You have to be younger and have the fight in you and be on the cutting edge. You know, I read people and I half the time don't know who's in it. Hmm. Imagine the stories that you promote as the big story, like so-and-so and so-and-so had a baby. I'm like, what? Who? From where? You know, so I don't think that I would do it again. Although I, my career has been so unpredictable that you never know what what will happen. I mean, I mean, there's a lane, you know, I mean, Ellen's going off the air. They yeah. All this left is Kelly Clarkson. I mean, you know, there's there's a lane there for you. There is. But um, I think that the time has passed for that for me. So Jason and I like to ask our guests, what is it about the 90s that made it so special? We just can't stop talking about it. We have a whole podcast about it. I mean, it was a, such a unique time and such a defined time. You know, I don't know that right in the 80s we were cherishing the 70s, you know. I mean, I, I, the 90s, it was like a high-octane decade. There was so much shit that went down and, and so much changed in that, in that time period, you know when I started the show to when I end the show, it was a whole different world, whole different world for TV and for how people consume media and what kind of demand there is, you know? I mean, no one ever thought there would be 24 hour news channels, never mind seven of them, you know, and, and, and you can get whatever it is you want. I mean, it's all thanks to OJ really, 
that we have all this 24 hour everything mm-hmm. thanks to what he did. So what is your relationship like with with Celebrity Today? You know, the second time you're ever in People magazine, you talked about um, someone told you, Madonna actually told you that fame changes you, but they never tell you how it changes people around you. Right. And I'm, I'm curious, where are you at with fame and celebrity today? You know, it's really fascinating because every wave hits the tide. And if you don't know that when you get in as a surfer, you're never going to succeed. Right. So I always had it mapped out in my head how my career would go. I didn't want to be 65 years old and, you know, only seen on to tell the truth, you know, back in the old days. Remember those kinds of shows that had, you know, the sea level celebrities come on and, and do them. I always knew that there I had to like get out while I was still functioning at a, at a level that was appreciated by my peers. And so that's one of the reasons that I left my show. I couldn't continue to do it at that level because it no longer was true for me that I was blown away by everyone that I met. I had met everyone. I had met mm-hmm. every single person I dreamed of meeting besides Olivia de Havilland, who recently died. I always wanted to interview her. Oh, but, that's a good uh, one. That's yeah. Interesting. So, you know, get used to it, but I didn't expect it to be something that would last and last and last. And, and on the whole, you know, boy, George wrote the greatest line about fame that I have ever heard, which is fame is the impending glittering disaster Mm. because it's a disaster. It kind of moves you away from your friends and family in, in a way that you have to really fight and struggle to maintain the decency and reality of your former relationship, like not change it because you seem to have moved to a different kind of place that, you know, fame, you play a role in the pop culture zeitgeist and people cast you if they want you as a villain, they put you as, oh, she's horrible. She does this or they love you. And I'm kind of polarizing, you know, some people don't enjoy me. Some people enjoy me very much. You know, it's hard to to know. But when when people don't notice you, I think it's freeing you know? mm-hmm. and to not worry what you look like every time you go out. So one last question for you. Is there one moment in your life in the 90s that sums up the decade for you? It had to be going to the Oscar parties with Madonna right before League of Their Own came out. And I would get out of her car with her limo and everyone's going, Madonna, Kathy Bates. Madonna, Kathy Bates. <laughs> and I'm like sitting there smiling my hair. And, and uh, so that was my first experience with the probably went to Spago and I sat next to Dennis Hopper and uh, at the table was Jackie Collins' sister. Joan? Jo- no, it was Jackie Collins, the sister. Oh, the sister. Well, she's still pretty major. So yeah. that's major. That's so 90s. Well, Dennis Hopper leaned over and said, I had sex with two women at this table. Start your guessing. I see. I feel like that shit doesn't happen anymore. Oh my God. It happened that night. It was so wild. Well, I am it's so, this is truly an honor. Like I thank you so much for, for doing this with us. It was so much fun. Thank you. It's so fun for me yeah. too. This was a treat. Thank you, Rosie. Thank you. Bye. Bye. In live from what is perhaps her beach house, that was Rosie O'Donnell. And the wind advisory that we warned you guys about, <laughs> right? We, we were not being dramatic for a change. But how incredible. I, I really was watching her, you know, 25 odd years ago. I, I really did have a feeling that this woman was someone who would like me, right? And, and in fact, she said, she said, I would like you. Yes, yeah, she would. And I think she was being truthful. And I loved her. Hey, 
everyone. I'm Sid Evans, editor-in-chief of Southern Living and host of Biscuits and Jam. Since 2020, I've been interviewing musicians, chefs, authors, and other Southern icons about their family traditions, their faith, their favorite meals, and of course, what it means to be Southern. And I'm excited to announce season five of our award-winning podcast. Join me every Tuesday for new conversations with some of the most interesting and influential Southerners around. Be sure to follow Biscuits and Jam wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find us online at southernliving.com slash biscuits and jam. Previously on Chasing Fabio. We might have to take this to the social okay. media universe. Ask for help. Let's ask for help. Ask for help. Hey, everyone. Yeah, if you happen to know Fabio yeah. or anyone who knows Fabio, or let's do that. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. Emojis. So I am filled with rainbow sunshine and positivity, Jason, because we came up with such a good idea last week to take our quest for chasing Fabio to Instagram and there's a twinkle in your eye that tells me the news is good today. I mean, you're going to die. I, I feel like people are make, like think we're making this up. We are absolutely in no way making this up. It's so insane. So I did put on my Instagram, hey, like if you if anyone happens to know how I can find Fabio, you know, LMK. And the most amazing thing happened. A woman with whom I worked at Glamour Magazine back in the day, Kat Thompson, she actually commented and said, I may be able to help you. I saw that. That's why I'm positive. So she she slides into my DMs. And so Kat says, my Fabio Dietz are from 10 years ago, confirming them with my uncle, parentheses, who's been friends with him for 40 years. How does one become so lucky? Honestly. We'll pass along as soon as I make sure it's accurate. And I just wrote back, stop it, and in all caps, dying. So then Kat gets back to me. And then like in nearly like a usual suspects plot twist, Kaiser Soze, she's like, here's the person to contact for Fabio. And guess who it is? Don't tell me it's Eric Esquire Marina. It's Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey. Like all roads lead back to Eric Esquire and Marina Del Rey. So... Here's the deal. Did you send him another email? (laughs) (laughs) So I did send him another email. Um, We swore we couldn't (laughs) send him another. Oh, my God. And so I'm like, all breezy. But you said breezy, though. But I was like, hey. I was like, what are the chances that we both know Kat Thompson, LOL? Um, (laughs) Would love to discuss this. You LOL'd Eric? Yep, LOL. I was like, LOL. <laughs> and um, he did actually respond and says, let's jump on the phone. Oh, my God. You weren't kidding when you told me the news was big. You teased it. It's major big. And it's just like, so Kat Thompson, like, you know, just like, let me know if you prefer orchids or hydrangeas. Like, you know, like, wh- this is so major. So wait, is the call set? Yes. So apparently it's going to be tomorrow. But like, fingers crossed, like, I mean, just like how how awesome is this? Like, I mean, I cannot believe this is happening. It's, it's amazing. Legit cannot believe yeah. you had to email Eric again and you broke him. Yeah. He said we're going to call. And who says social media is useless? I certainly did not. Fabio bringing us all together. Wow. 
Jason, you know, we love to take a little flip through the magazine. And normally we talk about the stories, but this time I got to talk to you about an ad and it's the Daisy Fuentes Got Milk ad where she's wearing a smoking hot gold dress. <gasps> she's got the 90s bombshell hair. And of course, she's holding a full glass of what I assume is glue because I've watched a lot of those shows <laughs> where they talk about the making of, you know, TV food and it's never what you think. So I'm just going to go with glue. And it says, girls, Let's talk about the F word, fat. It's no good, right? So I've got a solution. Drink three glasses of skim milk a day and you'll be getting all the calcium you need without the fat. So check it out. First of all, I love Daisy Fuentes. I love that she married Richard Marks. I mean, it kind of makes my 80s and 90s head explode. And then I really did love these ads because they had icons. If you were in a Got Milk ad in the 90s, you were somebody. Everybody did them. Like, Everyone, including 1997, Jonathan Lipnicki. <laughs> I mean, you really start at the top. Okay. Billy Ray Cyrus, Mario mm. from Mario and Luigi. I really need for you to get more A-list soon. Kate Moss. Okay, finally. Okay, now we're talking. I know. I knew I would perk you up. Now I'm interested. The copy on these ads was like a little irreverent and like a tiny bit snarky. Oh, I know because it was on the cover of my trick notebook and it said bones, bones, bones. I can't believe you remember that. Bones, 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 maybe so. <laughs> but unlike 75% of women today, there's one way I'm taking good care of mine by getting lots of cocaine. I mean, calcium. <laughs> Sorry, am I not allowed to say that? I'll keep going because there's more. <laughs> Christy Yamaguchi, Jennifer Love Hewitt. Oh, I loved Christy Yamaguchi. Do you know my bird was named Christy Yamaguchi? I my parakeet didn't, but for some reason I can't even blink at that. That seems perfectly on brands. Uh, the list goes truly on and on. Well, can I tell you who was on the other side of my trig notebook? Who? Naomi Campbell, because she had one. She did. Lisa Kudrow and Jennifer Aniston together. Uh, together, yeah. The together. Hanson brothers, Joan Rivers. This is all just in the 90s. Dennis Rodman. Joan Rivers had one? She did. And it said, can we talk fattening? Oh, grow up. This is skim milk. And it has all the same nutrients as whole milk without all the fat. I just love how in the 90s, we were so scared of fat that even our milk had to be fat free. They were like, and look, we don't have fat either. We're skinny. I mean, I learned all that from Margaret Cho, I have to say. I mean, Beyonce did one with Tina. <gasps> they got Beyonce, you guys. So Andrew, was weird that I like, looked at this. So sales of milk were sagging in both California and nationwide by like 1993. They had spent like the milk industry, as it were, it's spent much of the 80s promising that, quote, milk does the body good. And so consumers knew that milk was good, but they realized that like sales were declining. So they figured out a way to revamp milk's <laughs> reputation. <laughs> like they hired Olivia Pope. I also learned from doing a little research that more than 180 of the ads were shot by none other than Annie Leibovitz. What? That's how they got Kate Moss. There you go. So the Got Milk ads were informally retired in 2014. They're replaced by a Milk Life campaign. But what's interesting about this ad campaign, there were, I guess, roughly 300 produced. Well, yeah, I just named like 150 of them. So apparently for that first year of Got Milk ads, like the budget was something like 23 million. So if anyone out there knows how much celebrities were paid for this or if it went to their charitable foundation, I just I really would like to know what a sitting for Naomi Campbell in the mid 90s for the California Milk Processor Board was. I need to know. Quick Q. QQ. You have your own Got Milk ad. What are you wearing? And can you think of the first line? Oh. I know what you're wearing. I'll do this. Make it more fun. 
I'll do what Jason's wearing. Okay. And I'm going to do a line for him. So Jason's wearing his Jojo Siwa hoodie (laughs) given to him by Jojo Siwa. And he's smiling, but it's more of a smirk. It's not like a toothy smile. Mm, And he's mm, holding mm. the glass and it says something like, I'm particular about a lot of things, including my dairy, (laughs) including what milk I drink. I would never touch anything that wasn't 100% organic, grass-fed cow milk. I feel like we're in therapy and you're working out (laughs) aggressions against me. No, but it's like they really just like overblow people's like personalities. Mine would be like the only time I shut up is when I'm drinking milk. Guzzle milk, drink it all. Make a milk waterfall. Cookie milk, stack it tall. Milk with no rhythm at all. Make you run fast milk. Stay awake in class milk. Pour it by the glass milk. Is that a mustache milk? One last thing, Jason. Please tell me that you did not skip over page 108 story title, holy glitz, exclamation point. Of course I didn't, exclamation mark. So the story is a two-pager of all the celebrities who attended the very fancy schmance Fire and Ice Ball in LA in 1996. And what made it so starry is that all of the actors and actresses who were in the upcoming Batman and Robin were there because it was on the movie set. So they actually had the party on the movie set, which is kind of cool. Oh, because of Mr. Freeze, because of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Obviously. So Batman, Batman and Robin, as you probably remember, was played by none other than George Clooney, who attended this party with Celine Bellatron. Now, I definitely didn't say her name right. Oh, I remember her. But do you remember when he hit the scene, he was like the hottest thing ever, the original Dr. McDreamy. And he was dating this like random, beautiful French girl. Right. And everyone was like, who is this woman? I bet she doesn't think she's so random. Uh, remember back in the day, she was always described as a, quote, French law student and waitress. But she and George were together for like three years. She was not an actress. <laughs> but the point of all this, are we going to get to the nipples? Are we going to get to the great moments? We are. In nipple history with Batman and Robin. Are we going to get there? What George Clooney and Chris O'Donnell, who was there didn't know in 1996 was that in 1997, when Batman and Robin came out, it was going to be one of the most hated movies of the decade, if not all of eternity. <laughs> I, I, I know it's, it's it totally went on everyone's permanent record, right? No one could ever let it go. Right. Like Clooney would be asked about it for the next 20 years. He's still being asked about it. You know, the time he almost ruined the entire Batman franchise. And then poor Joel Schumacher. I mean, like talk about an epic 90s director and an an epic director in general. But he did Flatliners. He did A Time to Kill. He did Batman and Robin. Of course, he did Batman Forever also. I mean, he was the one who like, you know, put the nipples on the bat suit. (laughs) And he later just like laughed about it forever because he was like, who would have thought this one costume change, you know, would completely define not only a movie, but um, perhaps the rest of his career. One look at those giant pencil erasers and anyone could have told him that. Those things were like daggers coming out of those suits. But it's it's probably the the only time in pop culture history we've actually discussed men's nipples, right? I mean, it's like, you know, jiggle television, right? You know, with Charlie's Angels in the 70s and the Farrah Fawcett poster and all that this was you know i'd say it's about time we're talking about men's nipples and how many times can i say nipples on this podcast is it's gonna be so uncomfortable 
I'm always here for that. That's fine. Fine with me. Keep going. And in total proof that George Clooney, in fact, did not kill the Batman franchise, it was retooled in the 2000s, of course, with Christopher Nolan and Christian Bale playing Batman. And then yet again with Ben Affleck and like that trip down the Batcave. And now it's being brought back yet again with Robert Pattinson playing Batman in the Batman movie will be out next year. But that said, Batman's nipples, I mean, that's so 90s. That's so 90s. Thanks again to Rosie O'Donnell. I mean, incredible, and we are so grateful. Yes, and we had the wind in our hair because it was so present that I actually could swear I felt a breeze lift my hair. I mean, is it time for you to tell you that you're the wind beneath my wings? Ah! People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs, executive produced by Kim Ritberg and David Flumenbaum, edited by Chris Jacobs, mastered by Erica Wong, and with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs>